Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, the weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is the best way to keep on top of the latest news from China through our free email newsletter, our handy smartphone app, and of course at the website subchina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and I am in New York City today at the Asia Society, where I am thrilled to be joined by the Honorable Kevin Rudd, familiar, I'm sure, to everyone listening as the former Prime Minister of Australia, who also served as Minister for Foreign Affairs and as a member of Parliament. Kevin Rudd began his career as a student of China, studying Chinese history and the Chinese language, which he speaks with delightful fluency. He went on to a career in diplomacy and in politics. He is the inaugural president of the Asia Society Policy Institute here in New York, and he's also pursuing a doctoral degree at Jesus College, Oxford University. Prime Minister Rudd, Kevin, if I may be so bold? Kevin's fine. Welcome to Seneca. Happy to be on the program. Uh, we are at a moment right now where we really feel the force of history when we are all very conscious of the convergence of these major historical currents. Uh, and so many of the questions I want to put to you are commensurately weighty, I fear. But uh, Kevin, you, let's start with something easy. I mean, you, <laughs> you wrote your thesis at ANU on Wei Jingsheng, mm-hmm. the worker come dissident associated with the, the fifth modernization of democracy. Uh, I remember it very well. Yeah, very well. Uh, And that was under the late, great Pierre Rickmans. Uh, Now you're working, as I understand it, on a dissertation under the not late but also great Rana Mitter. Is that correct? Yeah, Rana is uh, an extraordinary historian of uh, modern China, uh, 20th century China, and uh, and particularly of the Republican period. Apart from all that, he has got a great sense of humor. He is. He's been a guest on our show a couple of times. That's uh, right. We we, we adore him. It's good to see him maintaining the standards here. (laughs) Yeah, he's, he's, he's terrific. It's hard, though, for me to think of two people as different as the person you're studying now, Xi Jinping, and uh, Wei Jingsheng, and you know, they're, they're, the worldviews are, are a world apart. Uh, you've talked quite a bit about the worldview of Xi Jinping and uh, the party that he now leads, but perhaps for our listeners who haven't followed your recent speeches, uh, you could quickly lay out for, for us what you see, at this point at least in your research, what the basic tenets, the features of that worldview are, and the goals that, that grow out of these basic features Do you have any particular hypotheses about Xi Jinping that you set out to test as you began working on on, on your your research? The reason for the research project is because every man and his dog is now asking a question, the question about what does China want. Mm. Given the structure of Chinese politics, it's therefore important to come to grips with what does Xi Jinping want, hence my interest in his worldview. The thesis that I want to explore is the extent to which China's worldview under Xi Jinping uh, has changed uh, in the post-2012-2013 period, and if it has, in what direction, and why that is the case. And I would prefer to do this in a properly researched format rather than run off totally seat-of-the-pants judgments based on the accumulated wisdom and erroneous judgments of a lifetime uh, of living and working with China. So that's why I'm trying to do it systematically. Most people think I'm nuts for doing it, but there you go. Wading through his turgid writings. Yeah, all that, and and uh, dealing with a bunch of my fellow students who are all old enough to be my children. Um, so that's fine, but it's good and humbling for folks like me as well. Um, I have a, a quite a brilliant tutor at Jesus College, Oxford, who's in her early 30s, and I, I sit and listen carefully to her reflections on Chinese behaviors through the Belt and Road Initiative in various parts of Africa. 
She's brilliant. So I sit quietly at her feet and listen. Very good. On the Xi Jinping thesis, though, to what extent has the worldview changed? Uh, your listeners will well be familiar with the end of Tao Guang Yang Hui Jue Bodangtou. Hide your strength, bide your time, never take the lead. Formerly interred by Xi Jinping at the party's uh, work conference on foreign affairs in November of 2014. And its replacement with a difficult and somewhat incohate concept called Fanfayowei, uh, which I think is best reflected in English as a more activist foreign policy. Sure, sure. And certainly, I think since then, we've seen lots of evidence of that. So the question is, activist in which direction? And what I've sought to do in recent speeches, including one I gave at West Point in, uh, March. in March of this year, is articulate what I describe as Xi Jinping's sort of concentric uh, circles of interest. Right. And very simply, and again, your listeners will be familiar with this, uh, number one, hold on to power, including the party in power and Xi within the party. Uh, not re- remarkable for a Leninist state, but important for people in this country, the United States and around the world, to remember that we are dealing with a Marxist-Leninist institution here. That's right. Number two, maintain the unity of the motherland. If you want to seek the uh, fundamental understanding for why we see repressive policies in Xinjiang at the moment, uh, frankly, it's so deeply etched into the political psychology of Chinese leaders that those who lose parts of the empire are badly reviewed in history. Those who consolidate the empire and maintain Beijing's control over it, or previous imperial capital's control over it, are reviewed well in history. Hence Taiwan, hence Tibet, hence Xinjiang. And Xi certainly sees himself as somebody who will stand in the judgment of history. I will. He, he's certainly somebody who's quite conscious about his legacy. Certainly in my conversations with him uh, over the years, uh, that's the distinct impression. People like Wang Qishan regard themselves as significant historical raconteurs, both uh, on China and the West. I think that is true. He reads extensively. When you go to Xi Jinping, he's also a significant reader, not just of his own country's history, of the party's history in particular uh, in the 20th century, but also a reasonable read of international history as well. So he sees himself in a Carlylean view of history, I believe, as one of the great men of history. Uh, just to round out the rest of that um, uh, Xi Jinping worldview. We've gotten to fighting the vociferous forces and keeping the country together. That's then, right. Then um, out to... I'm glad you used the word vociferous as well. I used it recently in a speech and most people ask what the hell it meant. The um, It just has a nice alliteration with forces, so, you know. And I think it's sort of neatly onomatopoeic as yeah, well. Yeah, it is. Third one is, uh, of course, uh, growing the economy in a sustainable fashion. That's necessary for, as we know, of continuing party legitimacy. Um, uh, and the legitimacy the party has enjoyed in the post-78 period and which had been destroyed uh, in the pre-78 period for reasons we're all familiar with but with a new twist, which is sustainable economic growth, uh, given uh, people's now legitimate and fundamental concerns about the environment. Again, a challenge to party legitimacy, given that it's the flip side, the downside, the cost uh, of rapid, unconstrained growth Mm. post-78. You lose that one, you start to lose legitimacy as well. So it's a new and trickier double-edged sword. I think four is, of course... um, 
China's uh, historical concern with its 14 neighboring states. People lose sight of the fact that China has uh, just as many neighboring states, the largest number in the world is Russia. Um, And this creates unique challenges for China, ever mindful of its history. It's not simply a statement of the obvious to say that China's domestic security concerns have often uh, come across its borders, whether it's Japan from the east, uh, the Qing from the northeast, the Mongolians to the north, even the Xiongnu to the north and northwest in more ancient times. But basically, the borders are seen as problem areas in Chinese history. So China's strategy for the borders is, I will maintain benign, and if I can possibly secure it, supine relations uh, with, uh, with, uh, with neighbors. Number five out of seven is its maritime periphery. Sure. And that is uh, the 1841-plus experiences that China's major assault on its sovereignty, self-confidence. barbarians. Yeah, yeah, and sense of national dignitas uh, when uh, Perfidious Albion, otherwise known as the British, uh, (laughs) arrived and in the noble pursuit of the British Empire and all the ethics associated with it said, um, please uh, consume our opium or we'll blow open uh, these ports and turn them to treaty ports, which is what they did later, of course, in the Second Opium War with the French. Then we had other problems uh, later in China's uh, 19th century and then 20th century history. So the maritime periphery, for understandable uh, domestic reasons in China, represents a problem. Uh, the only victory ever scored was temporarily by Lin Zexu and not many since. So therefore, uh, the imperative of creating a maritime space for China, which pushes uh, the American periphery well out uh, into the Pacific and beyond certainly the first island, island chain. chain. And then sixth and second and last in my view is the continental periphery, which um, is also relevant in China's history for security reasons, reinforced by concerns about the rise of militant Islamism in Central Asia and certainly Southwest Asia, and therefore the need from China's perspective to create a safer periphery for itself as well. Hence, not just domestic policies in Xinjiang, but also a broader strategic concept, I think, through the Belt and Road Initiative, Uh, that if you can bring growth and development to these parts of Eurasia, that over time you will lessen the attractiveness uh, of uh, militant Islamism. That's part of the strategy, but more broadly beyond uh, the Islamic footprint across Eurasia, but to the rest of Eurasia, the Middle East and into East Africa, it is, I think, to cause China to become the globally indispensable economic power for that um, vast continental terrain. Right. Which brings us to the last one, which is in the Xi Jinping worldview, uh, what he has called, I think, a new international order, one which China can fashion, shape, uh, and in fact the reform of which he now says in his most recent speech at the Foreign Affairs Work Conference of the end of 2018, or the June 2018. Lead the reform of global governance. Lead right. the reform. Lingdao, no longer Yingdao, no yeah, longer Tanjiao. Right. 
So when you're starting to Lingdao things as opposed to Yingdao or Yingxiang. Right, there, there's more direct. There's a gradation. And there would have been a subcommittee on changing the verb from uh, from uh, Yingdao to Lingdao. Yingdao sure. is not quite passive, but it's not as active, right? And more, Lingdao is more in your face than a Yingdao. Absolutely. For those <laughs> of us who study the entrails of these things <laughs> and frankly don't have a life. So I think that's a very neat encapsulation. Are we ready at this point now where the worldview of Xi Jinping is simply interchangeable with the worldview of the Chinese Communist Party? I mean, I think, can we use these two ideas now interchangeably? Given the power consolidation process of first term Xi Jinping uh, has been achieved with comprehensive success, for which purposes we should conduct a case study interview with someone like Bo Xilai to see how he feels about it. <laughs> well, let's just go up to the Qingdom prison and... Yeah, uh, Yong Kang and the boys. Um, it hasn't turned out well for no, those who were no, opposed. Indeed. So I think there is a uh, consolidation of power and authority, subject to um, some carping at the edges. Uh, I think it's fair to conclude, and with still some internal criticism, that the Xi Jinping worldview and that of the party more broadly are synchronous. Yes. Uh, we, we tend, on the ascent of each new general secretary of the CCP, to invest him, always him, with uh, fears, with hopes sometimes, uh, more naive of us. Uh, and I think this, of course, was the same with Xi Jinping. Can you talk about your own evolution of thinking? The, when, you know, you have had truck with a man since really, you were PM in 07, Kevin 07, and... This was when he was sort of anointed as his successor. He, he he was already very much on the stage, and I believe you had encounters with him. How has your thinking about the man changed in that decade plus? I think the one thing I probably got right about Xi Jinping was simply based on an estimation of his character and personality that he would not be content with being primus inter pares. Uh, Maybe it's just political instinct, um, but when you run into a guy, uh, in this case, who aspires to the leadership of his country, you soon get an impression as to whether they are an apparatchik from central casting <clears throat> or whether they have a sense of historical gravitas about themselves. Uh, with Xi Dada, it was certainly the latter. Yeah. Um, so I did write way back then, I think in 12, I wrote a piece in Foreign Affairs magazine saying that he would be the most powerful Chinese leader since Deng. Qualitatively, I may have got that wrong. We may reinterpret that as being since Mao, but history is still open on that. I think the thing that I got wrong was that I thought um, he would, uh, over time, potentially take the country in a more liberal direction. Um, and plainly, that analysis back then uh, was uh, has not been borne out by a range of developments we've seen, not just in terms of his individual power consolidation, but also in terms of what we've seen with um, his attitude to the reassertion of the role of the party over the state and the party in most domains of, let's call them, Chinese life. We'll talk about that, but um, you, you mentioned something. You, you talked about his his sort of political instinct. Now we tend again to, to invest Chinese politics with a sort of aura of mystique, but I, I think we really should be asking the same questions about China as we do about other other you know political systems. Yeah, I've never bought the mystique line. Yeah, I'm I'm glad to hear it. I, I, th I think it's horseshit. Good. 
If you one, can one, say that on this family that's program. Okay. It is a family program. Uh, uh, one question, though, I'd love your take on is that as someone who has been a politician, who has been through the rough and tumble of retail politics yourself, uh, I'm, I'm puzzled when I look at Xi Jinping. I don't feel like he has... Uh, the obvious tactical genius of a Mao or strategic vision or or the personal charisma or even the sort of charm of a Deng or even a, a Jiang Zemin who could you know, actually be charming. There's something about him that that seems sort of waxen and uh, sort of slow moving. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure he you see a gravitas in him, but I'm asking about see the retail politician. Uh, he obviously possesses some cunning. I mean, if you look at all the people who are locked up right now, the, the p- people who he's simply outmaneuvered. But what is it? What, what did you, And you saw this early on? You saw this canny? No, I didn't see the canny bit. Uh, what I saw was the sense of uh, historical mission. Right. And uh, when anyone you engage in frames their actions within a wider historical frame, uh, you uh, have a deep sense that this is not just the transaction of the moment, but they, they're on a mission. And secondly, uh, in terms of uh, Xi Jinping, in terms of political skillcraft, what I'd say is people often forget how deeply instilled Chinese political leaders are in Marxist-Leninism, uh, and in particular the uh, epistemologies and methodologies of that system of thought in particular, again, dialectics. Hmm. And the reason I mention that is that if you look at the essentials of dialectical thinking and analysis, which is about uh, thesis, antithesis, and synthesis, and you look at uh, Xi's exposition of the same in a couple of separate study sessions for the Politburo on these subjects over the last several years, my impression is that when Xi approaches his domestic political challenges, He's constantly looking at uh, almost the science of opposites uh, and the science of action and reaction, and is therefore ahead of the game politically. Um, So therefore, uh, when you have seen uh, his action against his political opponents more directly, I think uh, he has thought not just pragmatically and politically about that, but also somewhat dialectically. When you look at his identification of potential sources of dissent within the country, whether it's from uh, the private sector, whether it's from NGOs, whether it's from churches, Christian, Buddhist, Muslim, whatever. The liberal intelligentsia. uh, Or from uh, what Homer Simpson once described as the intellectuals, (laughs) uh, one of my favorite terms from Homer Simpson, Uh, then, uh, then... and sensing, therefore, where the sources of dissent against the Leninist state can come from, he's usually one step ahead of the pace. Is that that hard? I mean, is it really? I mean, was that? Isn't that something? That you can you can say it's right. intuitive. Right. The thing about uh, his dialectical approach is, I think, it's structural. Hmm. Uh, that's the point I'm making. And, so and a, he has encouraged his colleagues to think in those terms. Your final part of your question was: Does he exhibit a charisma towards the Lao Xing, the masses? Um, not being a member of the Lao Bai Xing, I don't quite, uh, I don't feel qualified to judge how his personal style is consumed by Chinese punters. Certainly, when I've taken taxis in Beijing, and you may be surprised to know that I do, uh, not always, but I do from time to time and have a chat. Uh, they've approved of what he's done and uh, anti-corruption, and they've been less enamoured of other things. Dialectical materialism has never struck me as a particularly sophisticated system of thought. 
either the Hegelian or, or Marxist version of it. And I, I maybe part of me wants to attribute to him maybe a, a greater intelligence than that. I mean, the man is pretty broadly read, at least he, he claims to be so. I wonder, though, we... We're but all, my point to you sure. is that I think he's both things. He is broadly read, but what I'm saying is there is a systemology to the way in which he analyzes politics and economics, which I think has been deeply shaped by Marxist pedagogy. Okay. And, uh, and, I, I, and unlike you, I don't think uh, Marxism-Leninism is without, shall I say, a level of intellectual sophistication. I think mm. it does. I don't agree with it. Uh, that's a separate matter. But as, a, as, as an elaborate worldview and as a systemology for understanding your place in history, historical materialism, uh, and how you advance the cause, dialectical materialism, and Leninism being the particular vehicle of the moment, the party, frankly, it coheres, uh, at least in their thinking. Uh, This is not a basis for expounding a uh, set of principles which are going to win you a thousand votes uh, out there in uh, the villages in Heilongjiang South. Uh, Not going to do that. But I'm simply explaining, seeking to explain this as a means of informing how he constructs his worldview. He's so now we've got this now. So now we have this cognitive analytical framework of dialectical materialism. We have this uh, adherence, this strict adherence to Leninism, this insistence of the party in control of everything. We talk all the time. And a Carlylean view of history of great men. (laughs) Put all that together. Put all that together. And we still don't have something that I would call an ideology. Hmm. We we still have something that is um, an empty vessel. And, And what is in it now? I mean, we always talk about. Uh, the triumph of ideology now over pragmatism. We talk all the time about, in, in this t- time, the reassertion of the Reds over the experts. I'm still unsatisfied with the way that people, when I've asked them, have talked told me about what the, the positive content of ideology actually is. Is it not much more than Chinese nationalism gussied up with a little, you know, Confucianism and then just some peons to uh, so whatever is conveniently drawn for Marxism? I don't feel like... There's no, but when I've spoken just now about Marxism-Leninism, I'm not talking about an ideology which is designed to cohere the Chinese nation. I'm simply talking about the intellectual software of the leadership elite. Sure. So to answer your question... I think question, that maybe an operating system, but still there's like, what are the programs that it's running? What are, no, that's true. Um, so beyond the intellectual software of the leadership and on to, uh, let's call it the answer to the decline of Marxism as a basis for mass belief. Um, and in the absence of a guojiao, uh, a national religion, uh, then what the hell do you do? Right. And uh, your depiction before of nationalism with gussied up uh, is not wildly inaccurate. My favorite pastime when I go to China is to see how that little girl in the Zhonghuo Meng series of propaganda posters <laughs> is traveling uh, as her mission statement expands into new forms of calligraphy and painting, respect for elders, uh, and the rest. Um, and you'll notice that most of it, a bit like the opening of the Beijing Olympics, it's got nothing to do with the party. Uh, it's everything to do That's with right. an incorporation uh, and therefore a harnessing of the uh, the positive narratives of Chinese history as told through the party's historiography, um, plus enduring Chinese hierarchical values leavened out of the, the Confucian loaf with not a lot of Taoism on, or Buddhism on the way through. 
we, it probably bears mention that this is not the only country in the world that does this, that cherry picks its history. Zuta law. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Are you referring to um, uh, the world's oldest democracy? <laughs> well, uh, the, that one, I mean, and this this one. Uh, no, no, that's, isn't that the self-description of the United States? Uh, sure, sure, sure. We are the old, I suppose we are. I mean, no, no, that's, uh, uh, that's, part, of the national, that's part of the national mythology of the United States. It's not sure, the world's sure, oldest sure. democracy. So um, as I think you may be the first Xi Jinpingologist who I've, I've, I've in, in encountered. Oh, no, there's, um, I think a good and useful book on Xi Jinping recently is put together by Liz Economy of uh, the CFR. And given that the subject is uh, opaque, all of us who seek through some scholarship to shed some light on this subject, um, I think, uh, have a contribution to make until the picture becomes clearer. We, we talked about this phrase, leading the reform of global governance. What do you take that to mean? Do you think he has something specific in mind? I mean, does he mean upending, supplanting, or just supplementing the Bretton Woods institutions? Does he... What what does he mean by that? I, I, it's 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 a vague vague claim. Is it the ITU, other standard setting bodies, uh, you know, in technology? It's the wonderful thing about Chinese uh, global statecraft uh, and national statecraft to some extent is that um, bold statements usually precede uh, detailed blueprints. Gai Gu Kaifang, Deng Xiaoping, Yi Dai Lu, One Belt One Road. Sure. Well, I mean, that caught the entire Chinese system by surprise. And we had a five-year catch-up by the Chinese bureaucracy to sew that into a coherent mass to the extent that it has been so far. Similarly with this question of the reform of global governance. So I think uh, the way in which Chinese political and bureaucratic leadership works is that we get to a stage where the leader pronounces that we shall do this, and a whole bunch of activity then ensues as people uh, seek to execute the new function or direction. Um, and then a subsequent review process, um, usually several years down the track, occurs as people come back and report on what the duty de zofa, concrete methods, have produced in executing this function or direction. Uh, and then it becomes more refined. This was called working toward the Fuhrer in uh, <laughs> another context. So therefore... We are sometimes guilty of underestimating what China does. And so therefore, I take these fundamental linguistic changes in national political and international policy direction seriously, because the way the system works is it commands a new bunch of activity. We sometimes overestimate it in the sense of the detailed nature of the blueprint at a particular time. But if you're sitting at uh, in the UN, for example, or in the Bretton Woods institutions over the last five years, you know that something new has happened. Chinese diplomats are more activist. There are now a bunch more Chinese, as it were, free-willing diplomatic initiatives to solve problem X, problem Y, problem Z. Uh, you know that there is a greater predisposition for China to seek appointments to UN or international bodies around the world. Uh, you know that China's uh, posture within the UN Security Council is no longer simply playing the role of Lao Er to Lao Su um, yeah. uh, or Lao Er yeah. um, uh, to, the Russians to the Russians in the uh, Security Council, and that the Russians are pausing more to see which way China will go on key questions. So we need to be very clear in observing these changes while not assuming that uh, there is a 97-point plan uh, lying in the bowels of the Policy Planning Department of the MFA covering every single international agency. 
but the broad contours of more activism, more presence of personnel, and I think, as I may have reflected in earlier speeches, a uh, rolling effort by our Chinese friends to change the culture, the operating culture, of a number of international institutions over time, always de facto rather than de jure. Right. That that leads well into the the next question I have for you, which is how does China see this particular historical moment? That is, how does she see this particular moment? I mean, they look out onto the onto the world. They 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 see a West now that's really in the grips of this populist nativist uh, insurgency. Essentially, uh, they see a, a, a nation, this leading nation, sort of frittering away its energies and internecine, you know, political wrangling. I mean, I, I keep thinking about in biology how an organism uh, it has to optimize for it, its how it uses its energy. And this doesn't look like a very successful organism in that way, frittering away so much of it in just this, this, um, you know, sort of internal political war, uh, civil war. Uh, the commitments of the United States to the rule-based order are now very much in question to its allies regionally, globally. They're very much in, in and, and really the very foundations on which this, on the entire Enlightenment project has been built are now sort of under siege by, you know, under this Trumpian assault. I mean, uh, Chaz Freeman called him Captain Havoc, and uh, I think that's 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 true. I mean, you know, it's science, it's reason, it's pluralism. These things are 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 frightfully under siege. And how does Beijing see then this moment? I mean, do they see this is our time? This is the the moment to strike. Yeah, I've begun to think about this over recent years, and um, and uh, the place where all sinologists go to give speeches on these subjects is Madrid. Um, not really. I mean, I just went to a conference in Madrid to a couple of years ago now to speak on this subject of the future of the West. Um, and uh, it's not that Madrid or Spain was a particular centre of the Enlightenment. In fact, it given, skipped the Enlightenment entirely, right? Given the centrality of the Catholic Church uh, and the and Spain's role in the Counter Reformation um, and the Counter Enlightenment. But no, what I was seeking to speak on was uh, a reflection about where we are, that is, uh, as a Western tradition, uh, products of, uh, let's call it, uh, the Reformation, the Enlightenment, democratic franchise, the rise of liberal capitalism, and the associated freedoms associated uh, that were incorporated with all the above, producing in turn uh, in the uh, wealth of the post-war period uh, growing intergenerational complacency about the fact that to sustain the end of history that you actually require continuing effort and it's not just ideological magic yeah it's not just a question of these truths being self-evident and eternal Um, they may be but by god you've got to work hard to uh, preserve the spirit of les miserables to make it work for the future and for the long term so i kind of been thinking about this because i believe in the west as an idea, and not as a question of ethnicity. I mean, that's not what I mean at all. But the idea of uh, the Enlightenment uh, is important. So if you stand back from it all, all these institutions are under assault. Remember, Judeo-Christianity is under assault for a whole range of different reasons, uh, not just the normal ones of, uh, of uh, rationalism, uh, but now the internal hypocrisy of uh, much of the Christian church as well. Uh, on sexual um, uh, abuse, 
uh, and then the Enlightenment uh, comes under assault from this uh, new populist movement of uh, of uh, alternative facts. And if we lose, therefore, what empiricism is about, or reason, whereby A plus B leads to C, and simply arrive at a position whereby, whereby my opinion's as good as yours, irrespective of the facts and irrespective of reason, then we're into a whole brave new world, which is quite scary. So the Western condition, generally, at present, for which Trump in particular is not to blame, but many uh, traditions uh, and political practices across the collective West are corporately to blame, the West is in a bad state. So what's China say in response to that? I think China, in response to that over the last decade plus, uh, has been in a state of uh, heightening uh, encouragement uh, that, in fact, their own authoritarian capitalist project can therefore possibly prevail, not just at home, but also possibly uh, as a model to emulate by those who choose to do so uh, from abroad as well. Uh, And secondly, when those principles also apply to the future of the international order, um, our friends in Beijing have been delighted when Trump has sought to take the meat axe to the World Trade Organization, when America withdrew from the Human Rights Council in Geneva, uh, and when the United States uh, indicated its impending withdrawal from the UN Climate Change Convention uh, and has engaged in a rolling polemic about uh, the United Nations as a system. Given that these institutions were all created by America, by and large, in the post-45 order. Uh, Our friends from Beijing can't believe their luck that America's taking the meat axe to the order it's it's created. But with one final caveat, President Trump, like him or loathe him, has now arrested China's attention, Uh, and not just because of the trade war, but also, uh, as evidenced by Vice President Pence's speech, Uh, on U.S.-China relations. And I'll ask you about that in a little bit. Uh, A much more frontal reaction to, let's call it, the Chinese alternative. Maybe we can can touch on that right now. Um, You heard Pence's speech today. Uh, You saw Matt Pottinger's remarks. I I assume that they were from from Matt Pottinger uh, the other day. They were the same thing. There was nothing new that was introduced, and we had been sort of held out this promise that there would be evidence of, 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 I mean, they didn't even mention, for example, that Bloomberg piece on the new chip that, that was discovered mm. or or bring up the DuPont uh, article that was in the Wall Street Journal not too long ago. It was it was a bizarre sort of nothing burger, I thought, of, of a, a, a long litany of familiar and valid human rights complaints. And then this, this business about uh, election meddling amounting to nothing more than targeted tariffs at, at Trump voting counties, counties that broke for, for Trump. And I thought that was a very tactically odd move from the Trump administration. Although I'm not, I suppose I'm used to odd tactics. But what did you make of all all that before we get back into the more cerebral, heady stuff? I think um, when you look at where U.S.-China relations have gone over the last twelve months, uh, um, I partly disagree with you. I think there've been two significant, perhaps three significant developments. One's the national security strategy of December last year, which formally interred the period of strategic uh, engagement and replaced it with a period of strategic competition. Yes. 
Um, and what I've noticed in particular about that, as has Beijing, is no one much from the Democratic Party in this country has opposed it. Yeah. Um, a few voices here and there. But by and, by and large, whether you're Republican or Democrat, you're in the administration or in the Congress, uh, whether you're in an NGO or think tank or uh, in um, uh, a large American corporation, there hasn't been much blowback right. against uh, that new direction. That caught Beijing's attention. Second thing that's caught Beijing's attention is the fact that uh, all the uh, declaratory huff and puff about uh, actions against uh, Chinese uh, trade policies turned into concrete measures that's over right. the course of the summer. That caught Beijing's attention as well. Yeah, they were absolutely unprepared for this. And the third one, and the third one, I think, is this speech. Um, and this is where I partly disagree with you. Uh, it is uh, the first administration-level articulation of the breadth of the uh, official American critique uh, of China in this new period of strategic competition beyond the trade agenda. Where the speech does not provide any further information is in terms of what will now be the further refinement of U.S. strategy and or policy towards China. Uh, but in terms of the harshness of the uh, the language, I think uh, it will cause, again, Beijing to sit up and take notice, and it will confirm in the minds of many that the impending uh, unfolding period of U.S. quote, containment, unquote, of China uh, is uh, now entrenched. Mm. I fear you may be right. A, a matter of debate among a lot of us, and it's been going on for some years, is China's behavior more motivated by uh, a lack of confidence, by sort of uh, anxiety, or by overweening confidence? I think we, we've all seen this sort of strange uh, bipolar sudden lurch between uh, kind of paralyzing anxiety and kind of uh, sort of an obvious inferiority complex and then this bullying swagger with never that sort of comfortable middle portion. I think many people have made that observation of China, but I am never quite sure whether we should better understand a lot of China's uh, uh, assertive behavior as resulting from the one or the other. I've never been comfortable in answering uh, questions about is China self-confident or is China uh, deeply anxious? Uh, for the simple reason is I don't know. And this is too profound a question of, um, shall I say, civilizational Freudian analysis uh, for, the, for um, people with um, my own background. But what I think we fail to understand constantly about China when the, our Chinese interlocutors say that their principal preoccupations are domestic uh, and about the economy, there's some truth in that, particularly the vulnerabilities we now see unfolding in the Chinese economy domestically. But underneath it all, if you run a Leninist party, uh, frankly, you're in a permanent state of anxiety um, because uh, as a Leninist uh, whose occupation of political office depends on the barrel of a gun and not the the, uh, the ballot box, uh, you are constantly on the uh, lookout for any challenge to the legitimacy of your regime. 
however small or however large. And I think this informs a whole lot of Chinese uh, domestic and international behavior, which we often lose sight of. This argues for the anxiety then as as the primary motivator? Well, I think uh, being concerned about party legitimacy and personal legitimacy uh, in a system which lacks the automatic political stabilizers that uh, election processes deliver other political systems around the world uh, is a factor. It's not the exclusive factor, but it's one we should bear in mind. Kevin, you've talked about the risk that Xi has assumed in arrogating to himself uh, so much power, in, in amassing so much, becoming CEO of everything, all the, the, the leading small groups that he's mm. in charge of, and all, uh, with no one else to blame, you know, really, should something go wrong, all the blame falls to him, right? I was reflecting on this, and I was wondering whether the high personal stake might actually, the high personal stakes might actually act as a curb on adventurism, uh, a kind of curb on risky moves, on overt confrontation. He's just banking too much. He's banking you know, his legitimacy on an outcome, whether it's a minor military clash or, or, or whatnot. Uh, have, you, have you pondered that, and do you think that there's maybe some, some truth to that? On the wisdom of individual leadership versus collective leadership, well... The historical origins of that your listeners will be well familiar with in terms of where China got to during the Cultural Revolution, right. where the constraints against bad in- emperor syndrome, quote-unquote, uh, disappeared, and they did have a bad emperor during the Cultural Revolution. Not to mention the emperors and not to mention the Great Leap Forward, right. an even bigger disaster which preceded it, which is still a subject of um, public conversational taboo in China today, which is remarkable right. for events which unfolded at the time I was born. Uh, so concerned is the party about questions of legitimacy 60 years later. But on the question of the future, I think it's worth pondering this. As America begins to confront China, uh, they may choose not to use that term, but as we go into this new period of strategic competition, uh, what uh, I think about a lot is this. If strategic engagement is over, over 40 years, a whole bunch of uh, rules, protocols, habits, cultures, through which the relationship between the two is conducted, and around the world evolved and kind of been taken on through uh, a process of osmosis. Well, 2018 is a big year. Uh, The United States has proclaimed that era is over. But in in this new period of strategic competition, what are the rules? And in the absence of rules, are we now going to look at this relationship career in multiple directions in the absence of automatic, as it were, assumptions about how far you can push the trade for, how far can you push the economic relationship, how far can we now push uh, incidents and near misses in the South China Sea, etc. So what I'm beginning to think about, if you ask the question, uh, is in this period, both for China and for the United States, Uh, Is it now a free-for-all, or are we now in the business of having to rapidly evolve new rules or parameters through which competitions to be conducted, or are we on more of a gradual glide path from competition to confrontation and then to conflict? 
It's too horrible to think about. So I'm going to think instead about uh, a a post-Trumpian future in which some semblance of the rules-based order survives, and we still have an illiberal China to deal with. And uh, this rules-based order rests on a lot of the things that we had been talking about. These mm. are our values. There's, it's, it, there, there's a lot of implicit values mm. in it, and these are Western values. These are, are what China does not like to be described as universal values. Western values which have become progressively universalized. Sure. sure. Remember the number of um, non-Western countries in East Asia which have decided to become liberal democracy. Absolutely. Indonesia, um, the largest Muslim country. Western in origin, now now increasingly universal, and, uh, mm. and I think that's a very good thing. Now, we see this as a good thing, I think. Uh, uh, we've also been critical, I think. I, I certainly have, and I know you have been, of this sort of teleological worldview uh, that, that it has its hold on the West. Uh, and, and this idea that China will inexorably develop toward becoming more like us. You've, you've seen, I would say that there is, there's been an exaggerated straw man version of that, which has been you know imputed to proponents of engagement. But yes, I think you're right that there was some version of that for many people, the sort of acceptance of and this that development. That version's reflected in Vice President Pence's speech today. Sure, it, it I've, I've seen it Very stated today more clearly perhaps than any other authoritative statement where he says uh, that we expected China in effect to become much more like us, meaning the United States. Well, I think he was, again, saying that that was the old way of thinking in that speech. Uh, and uh, I think we're all now in this sort of post-Jim Man world uh, uh, where where that idea, we, we all sort of accept now that for the near-term future, China is not looking at, you know, barring any kind of, you know, radical revolutionary event there, it's it's not going to be. So that leaves us with the question of how do we coexist with our rules-based order and wanting China to be incorporated into it. Does our pluralism extend to uh, membership of illiberal members? I mean, this is the same thing on a microcosm that we ask about our plural societies. Can we tolerate the intolerant? I think the big shift that it's occurred in recent years is many of us who've studied China closely concluded a long time ago that China wasn't going to head in any particularly liberal direction anytime soon. Uh, certainly in the last five years, um, we've seen that. The big change which has occurred is uh, when uh, analysts of China have seen that spilling out into the international domain. Um, that is often an assumption which is, okay, various Westerners may be disappointed at the extent to which China has failed to become, after our own image in the West, domestically. But hold the phone. Are we now talking about... Uh, China exporting one way or another an authoritarian capitalist model beyond its borders and reflected in changes to the international rules-based order. Uh, and that, I think, is what's caused people, whether it's from German manufacturers uh, through to the human rights community uh, associated with the HRC in Geneva through to other policymakers in the world to sit up and uh, take notice. So... If liberal internationalism, um, as espoused uh, post-45, is to uh, have a future, then how do you coexist with China? I think uh, the other member states of the international community, if they want the current rules-based order based on its established pillars to survive, they're going to have to argue for it and argue strongly for it and argue with passion and commitment for it. 
Otherwise, it will disappear beneath the waves of um, an economically dominant China over the long term. And the sooner sooner people are aware of that, uh, the better. If nation states around the world think that an authoritarian capitalist model is just as good as a uh, liberal democratic model for the future, if people actually think that and are passive in response to the international challenge to those norms, uh, then let me tell you, uh, the Chinese way may well prevail. Uh, my simple argument is that um, uh, that's not my view. My view is that China's domestic future will be sorted out entirely by the Chinese people through their own mechanisms, their own economic growth and development, and how the next generation of Chinese folk view the state. It'll have not a lot to do with what us folks on the outside do, however we may choose to delude ourselves. But where it does matter is what we and the rest of the community uh, international community believe to be the appropriate rules for the international order for the future. And that, I think, is where the challenge for policy leaders in capitals around the world now stands. I want to move the conversation now to Australia. Uh, you've been an advocate. It's, it's just to the west of us. <laughs> for a, a balanced China strategy for yeah. Australia. I mean, I think you put it very nicely. It's neither conflict nor kowtow. Yeah. Uh, that sounds that, to me. I wrote that more than ten years ago. Actually. Yeah, I think that's. I mean, it sounds to me like a, a sound formulation for an American strategy as well. I would like to, to see it. I mean, maybe kowtow wouldn't be appropriate. Uh, we're a little bigger than Australia is, but I think it's actually. You know, I mean, it's it's. Part, I've seen it's, certain American businesses kowtow from time to time. I have too. Mm. I've definitely. Seen and not them. just businesses. Ikarthol, Arkarthol, Sankarthol. I think the approach was actually implicit when you uh, gave that famous speech at, at Peking University and used the word jungyo, which mm. I must confess is not a word that was in my vocabulary, uh, limited as it is. But I have to confess that time it wasn't in mine either. So. Was it, I mean, Jeremy Barmay likes to take a little bit of credit for it. So he should do. He should okay, do. Good, good. Okay. Jeremy and I were at university together. Right. He was uh, Lao Da and I was Lao Ar. Yeah. And so he actually, he's a serious Sinologist. Uh, yeah, I'm just a guy in politics who knows a bit about China. Um, but uh, as he explained to me the concept of Zhongyo back then, uh, and coming from the classical tradition as a friend who can still speak truth to power, who can still be candid, right. uh, even with friends about, um, listen, mate, I think you've screwed up here. That's the kind of mature relationship which you can have, and which in our better periods Australia has also had with the United States as an ally, rather than supine subservience and running off to wars in Iraq on no pretext. So you advocate for this middle way, uh, yeah. you know, for being a Zhongyo. It, it sounds great in theory. It's not so easy to execute on in practice. Uh, my sense is that, you know, it can help you to put a floor under a relationship, which is a very important, a very good thing. You can set up mechanisms for better communications. Uh, often, whether it's Canberra or Washington, you, you still, though, you find yourself responding on an ad hoc basis. You're still looking at situations and sort of weighing them through this middle way and from the outside, because so much of the decision-making, as you've said, has to actually take place behind closed doors. It has to be sort of secretly done. From the outside, it looks still extemporized. It looks improvised. It, it looks like there isn't necessarily a strategy underlying it because here now we're taking this instance and, and you know, being hard here and then, you know, cutting them slack there. It looks ad hoc. And so I feel like some, even though you've resisted doing this in the past, you still, there, there needs to be some sort of communication of the idea 
in a more concrete way to the media, to other stakeholders, to uh, to multinationals, to people who are invested in the relationship. So maybe you could help. So what we've done in our period in government, um, when our party was in government and I was either prime minister or foreign minister, is that we actually developed a cabinet-approved national China strategy. Took you a while. <laughs> Took us a long time. Right, right, right. right. Uh, it's not an easy thing. To, it's not to an easy thing to do. Yeah. Based on the principle of Zhongyo, not a term often used in Australian cabinet discourse <laughs> either. But seriously, but, either, yeah, right. but seriously, back then, the whole idea of a balanced relationship, and I'm talking about beginning this process a decade ago, when we could see uh, through the fog that uh, we were about to enter a whole new period of China's rise and America's relative decline, uh, accelerated, of course, at that time through um, the global financial crisis, a classic American own goal of poor regulation of financial markets in this country, which then infected the rest of the world. Thank you, Uncle Sam. Um, But um, we, in response to that, and we dealt quite closely with the US administration during this period, developed a robust China strategy which balanced our interest in foreign investment and what we would permit and what we would accept. Uh, There are many instances of you sort of going hard on China. Well, there was a number of uh, yeah. major foreign investment applications where we said no on Rio nas- Tinto. national interest grounds. Um, similarly on human rights, and similarly on, um, let's call it uh, strategic security in the region, the uh, build-up of the Australian Navy. Um, this is uh, all done consistent with a principle of Zhengyo, and my also my deep view of my Chinese friends, and I have many friends in China, including in the government, uh, that um, China respects strength and is ultimately contemptuous of weakness. Mm. So my view of prosecuting a Zhongyo relationship is not your average, what I describe as... You have um, to be a muscular Zhongyo. Uh, is not kind of what I describe as a, a seminar in the liberal arts department right. with a bit of folk <laughs> dancing afterwards to make everyone feel happy. That ain't what I'm talking about. Uh, this actually was reflected into what we did in security policy, the instruments of national defense, what we did in cybersecurity, what we've done uh, in terms of economic policy, including foreign investment rules, and what we continue to do to defend the interests of Australians incarcerated in Chinese prisons, um, standing up for their liberties, Stern Hu and the rest, uh, as well as um, issuing visas to Rabia Kadir and whoever else was rolling around the place as well. Uh, while still expanding our trade and economic relationship with China, engaging them in all sorts of dialogues on common security concerns, etc. There's a way up the middle of this, so long as you don't lose your backbone. And hale. It's just really, I mean, it's, it's yeah. Just <laughs> hale. Yeah, So, uh, I know you've spoken about... It's easier, much easier. Yeah, uh, right. You've spoken about a new sort of regional order that you would like to see, sort of something yeah. that's not Pax Americana and not certainly not Pax Seneca, despite my fondness of, of that word, Seneca, this being the name of this show. That was a promotion for the show's program. It was. <laughs> Thank you very much. My, uh, my, my, uh, my fondness for that name notwithstanding, you talk about this as sort of a, a better alternative, Pax Pacifica. Hmm. How does this work? Uh, how how does, uh, does this come about? And I, mean, I guess maybe we can look at a concrete example right now. Uh, we we just saw your new prime minister, uh, Scott Morrison. Don't know. I mean, on the party affiliation. <laughs> yeah. So he 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 has just talked about uh, on, on 
a radio program uh, in reference to the USS Decatur and its sort of near collision with uh, a Chinese warship in the South China Sea. Forty-six yards. Forty-six yards. So that's that's not yeah. Has said maybe Australia has a role to play in. I mean, given its close relationship with both China and the United States, that maybe it could act as some sort of a, an intermediary. Uh, is this an example of the sort of Pax Pacifica that you, you envision? No, I think it's all nonsense. Um, <laughs> the, uh, it's not just because Prime Minister Morrison has said that, and uh, Scott wouldn't know uh, much about China if he fell over it. I mean, I know the guy reasonably well. That's not his bag of tricks. The whole notion of being intermediaries between uh, China and the United States, uh, the level of national statecraft is a nonsense. What I was talking about with Pax um, Pacifica, Again, more than a decade ago, woman Lao Gambo Jianza is something which, uh, in fact, uh, was trying to anticipate China's rise and managing China's rise within a multilateral framework within the region, but still based on existing alliance arrangements. That is, we weren't about to walk away from the security uh, relationship with the United States, nor uh, were we expecting Japan or the ROK or anyone else to do the same? In fact, uh, we see inherent stabilizing forces and factors arising from the continuity of those security relationships. But it's not incompatible with that to then evolve regional multilateral mechanisms which have about them the principles of how do you craft concepts of common security, craft practices of uh, common security policy action in response to national natural disasters, over time greater transparency of military budgets, over time greater transparency of military exercising, over time rules uh, to avoid incidents at sea and incidents in the air across all nation states within the region, uh, and in time maybe a mechanism which could deal with outstanding territorial disputes in a multilateral format as well. Mm. I articulated this a decade ago. I called it beginning to develop an Asia-Pacific community. Uh, And it was not a utopian concept crafted as a substitute for existing alliance or hard security arrangements, but as an addition which could grow over time. Uh, That was the idea then. Regrettably, progress since then has been fairly thin. Uh, maybe in the interest of your time here, two last questions. <clears throat> They're not small, though. The conversation around China and Australia, at least um, what we know of it here in North America, has been dominated in the last year or so by this debate over the alleged Chinese interference or ongoing interference and, and uh, influence operations in Australia. You know, the scandal around Sam Dastyari, uh, the publication of, of, of Clive Hamilton's book, uh, John Garneau's various claims about dastardly Chinese deeds, uh, you know, all, all of this stuff. Uh, laws, of course, in, in response intended to ostensibly to limit foreign influence. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are echoes of it here. Uh, you've certainly made your position on this pretty clear. Uh, we've talked about it a lot on our show. We've, we've had a couple of your countrymen, Andrew Chubb and, uh, and David Brophy, come on to talk about that. Um, but now that you're here in the U.S. and watching a similar conversation happening here, I'm curious what you see as the parallels, the similarities, and what the differences are there are. Because I'm frankly alarmed at the way that these two different situations have been conflated uh, by a lot of Americans who want to advance a particular agenda. 
Well, I think it's important to look at um, some of the individual personalities which are engaged in this. Um, and secondly, I mean, whether certain individuals are seeking to make a bit of a career out of it as well. But Clive Hamilton is not a sinologist. He's not a professional student of China. Uh, he's, he's basically a bit of a conspiracy theorist. Um, the truth is China within Australia and the United States uh, will seek to expand its influence, will seek to expand uh, its uh, ability to bring about national outcomes for China uh, in China's advantage. Most nation states in the world do that, as in history has the United States as well. When it comes to Chinese intelligence activities around the world, I don't comment on them for the simple reason is having been in office, uh, we um, maintain a policy both then and since leaving office of not commenting on the intelligence activities of other states nor what we do in response to them. Let me say more generally, however, that we in Australia have always had a robust approach to dealing with uh, any efforts domestically but from any source. Uh, to subvert our political sovereignty or territorial integrity. All I'm saying is states have a lot of capacity through their security and intelligence services to protect the core interests of those states. We in Australia have done so in the past, and we've expanded the capacity and the legal powers of our agencies to do so uh, in response to multiple challenges from around the world. In There's plural a- societies like ours, we have sort of a, an immune system that should be able to respond to these sorts of threats as well. I think the important thing to bear in mind is that when foreign interference campaigns start to boil over into um, uh, McCarthyist tendencies, we need to be very concerned. And when you have uh, the political manipulation of um, foolish acts by Australian senators like Senator Dastyari, from the Australian Labor Party, and turning that into a general political pogrom against the Australian Labor Party as somehow being soft on China, and then creating a wall of suspicion about Australians of Chinese origin as being uh, prospective fifth columnists for the Chinese state. That's what I really object to, and that's why I engage in the debate in Australia. And when we talk about a balanced relationship uh, with China bilaterally, It means also having a balanced attitude towards the protection of people's civil liberties at home while ensuring that our security and intelligence agencies are properly resourced to deal with real, not imagined, security threats to the country. And what about in the United States? The the part of the question asked about this this effort to sort of transpose this whole crisis uh, to the U.S. unchanged. Let me answer this more broadly by simply saying that Uh, As the public attitude in the United States towards China hardens, and it has big time and over the last several years, um, the United States will also need to be very mindful uh, about the historic lessons of McCarthyism as well. Um, That is, uh, I'm all for vigilance. I'm all for our security intelligence agencies having the proper resources, including in this country, to defend the civil liberties of this country and defend uh, the uh, political um, sovereignty of this country. Uh, That is entirely appropriate, but we should be very careful in any Western democracy about engaging in language of any sort which is in danger of stigmatizing a particular group of people, whether it's Australian Chinese 
or Chinese Americans or anybody else for that matter, uh, we must be uh, very careful about that into the future. You're somebody who's steeped in the culture of China, knowledgeable and quite appreciative of the history, as are many of our listeners, I think. I often find myself struggling to figure out how much history should actually inform my understanding of the Chinese leadership's behavior. You've made reference a few times now to, so you've, you've, you've drawn on historical lessons, for example, talking about uh, the, the Xiongnu and the Mongols and other barbarian tribes and you know, the uh, seafaring barbarians as well. Uh, how, though, do we know how to come down between continuity and change when looking at a given problem? I mean, I see people err commonly on both sides. I was appreciative, for, the, for example, that you were talking about China's international system without invoking this uh, mythical tr- tributary system. I, I noticed that you didn't do that, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you didn't. Uh, but at the same time, it's, it's, it's obvious that Chinese history exerts tremendous gravitational pull uh, that, that it does inform. I just don't want to ever commit the, the sin of essentialism or uh, conjure up some psychocultural nonsense to explain Chinese behavior. Do you have any rules of thumb that you would offer our listeners on how to approach these problems? It's one of the reasons why I've embarked on this research project on Xi Jinping to examine, even within the 21st century, how much continuity and how much change have we got. How much of this is continuing Chinese history? How much of it is it the continuing history of the Communist Party? And how much of it is Xi Jinping? These are valid questions. So what's the answer? Most cultures are generally incapable of self-reflection. Um, mine certainly is in Australia, and my observation is in America much the same. We have historiographies about our culture, um, and these are often very comforting. But in terms of a genuine self-reflection, of what's right and wrong with our culture or what its strengths and weaknesses might be or how accessible we are to alternative perceptions of reality, that's usually hard for anyone who's culture-bound, including our Chinese friends. Absolutely. So therefore, it is important to understand how reality is perceived through a cultural lens. Um, And if there are a couple of principles which emerge from the Chinese tradition, which I think are continuing, it's... Uh, learnings and gleanings that China is in the business for the long term and not the short. Uh, There's a lot in that. Um, It is not uh, in the business of simple overnight political gratification. And secondly, uh, that the Chinese tradition has imbibed a sense of, shall I say, hierarchy in social relationships uh, through uh, centuries of Confucian and, frankly, post-Confucian practices. Uh, that still permeate China's own political worldview within its own country. This isn't Asian values redux. No, no, no. And, uh, and towards, uh, towards others as well. But having said that, and those two principles to one side, to the extent that they're sustainable, China behaves in, as uh, rationally as an international actor as other states. And therefore, we do need to demystify uh, all this stuff by not, Um, uh, regarding uh, China as so inaccessible in its international behavior because of the deep mysteries of the Middle Kingdom (laughs) and what Qin Shi Huang had for breakfast in 221 BC. I regard all that as capital H horseshit. Um, Well uh, said. (laughs) uh, So I observe Chinese state behavior as I observe the behavior of other states, but with a couple, not too many, 
cultural overlays which do shape, uh, shall I say, particular Chinese perceptions. Prime Minister Kevin Rudd, thank you so much for your time, and it's been a real honor to speak with you. Uh, before I pack up here, let's do recommendations for the week. Very quickly, Kevin, what do you have? I know you need to run. Well, recommendations. I think when I read the list of recommendations, it's uh, things to read or stuff to go and see. I saw Crazy Rich Asians the other day. I thought it was a hoot. Oh, yeah. Um, I wouldn't say it's going to succeed at the Cannes Film Festival. you know why I like it? Why? Singapore has finally started to laugh at itself. Ah. Now, this is not no, bad. No, that, that, is, that is unusual. When cultures start to be able to have a giggle about themselves, we Australians do all the time, you Americans do it all the time. We're very, yeah. But frankly, having our Singaporean friends laugh at themselves, I think is kind of interesting. Excellent. Uh, my recommendation, that, I mean, I, I haven't seen it yet, but I will. I had initially planned to throw you a question about, you know, comparing Xi Jinping to some great uh, historical figures in China. And I was sort of rattling through a list of emperors and thinking about books about them, you know, from Cao Cao to, uh, to the Kangxi Emperor. And I thought about Jonathan Spence's book, which came out in 88, called Emperor of China, Self-Portrait of Kangxi. And it, I hadn't read it in a while. I picked it up again and flipped through it. I'm uh, it's it's a terrific book. I mean, it's one of his less think, popular, but uh, quite it's true. Uh, the, the written in first person and from the point of view of Kangxi himself. Kangxi, I mean, is a fascinating historical figure, not just for longevity, but also on let's call it on the Renzhen stakes. Kangxi gets a nine point nine. Oh, absolutely. For what I described as serious anal absolutely. retentiveness for running an empire that yeah, big. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was big in the days of the Qing. A diligent, hardworking emperor. That's right. I mean, Chen looked been... like a sluggard no, compared no, with it. The last 20 years especially. That's right. yeah, absolutely. But uh, so therefore, I think when I see contemporary Chinese historiography about China's imperial past, there is a reverence for simply the renzhenedness, uh, the earnestness, the application, uh, which I think uh, inspires perhaps people like uh, Xi Jinping because this guy is a serious right. 24-7 leader. Thank you very much once again. Uh, I do hope that we can uh, entice you to come back on the show. And, uh, oh, by the way, you and told we'll you. we'll address I, you as Dr. Kevin Rudd. Yeah, <laughs> sometime in the 22nd century. The, um, but I should tell you about our two black cats. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, one's called Ching Ching and one's called Mei Mei. Oh. Uh, really? They are rescue cats from the New York Cat Rescue Society. Uh, and uh, they were found in a box in Chinatown. Um, and we've taken them in. So they're now living the life of Riley. Uh, but the bottom line is, uh, so we've called these two sisters, uh, Ching Ching and Mei Mei, after Sung Mei Ching. Ching, Ching, Ching yeah, Ching that's Ling. what I thought. We and we've yet to find an Eiling. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, excellent. Uh, thank you very much, and we hope to have you back. Thanks for having me on the program. The Civica Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn and edited by Jason McGronald and me, Kaiser Guo. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And make sure to check out the other great podcasts in our network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.